explaining and uh, teaching on what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, from a theological standpoint, it's one of the ordinances of the church. And for those that have been through Connect 101 as we explore uh, core beliefs, in fact, even last Sunday night, those that are going through, we talked about the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, and uh, the importance of that. We know it's an ordinance because of two things. Not only did Jesus model, he, he participated in the Lord's Supper. In fact, he redefined, and we'll see from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what that means for us, and we'll see that. So he ordained it, uh, or he practiced it, but he also ordained it. He said, this you should do in remembrance of me, and we'll get there as well. Now, to some of us this morning, as we come before the table, uh, the Lord's uh, table, we understand that some of us are very familiar with what we uh, co would call communion. And I understand also that there are others that may, uh, there may be some confusion or less familiar. For some, it holds high significance in something that you desire. In fact, uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've, uh, I've, we have we put in the bulletin that we're doing communion. It's kind of uh, caused some stirring among some of us. And you've come to me, some of you, and say, man, I miss that or I, I need that. Um, where's, where's Mike Panyard this morning? Love is hard. He came to me on Wednesday night. He says, hey, when are we doing communion? And he says, I, I need that. I need that power that comes with that. And, and, uh, and so there's some of us that it's high significance, but for others, communion might just be something of tradition. It, it could lack meaning or become mundane. Now, there's some dangers when we come to the Lord's table that we know that it's important, but it can lose its importance in our hearts. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 29 in your Bibles. A uh, very interesting verse I was led to this week as I was considering the fact that in our hearts we, or in our lives we can do things that our hearts are not supporting. And listen to what happened to the children of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, it says, The Lord says, says these people, my people, the Israelites, they come to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of only rules taught by men. And there's a danger when we come to the Lord's table that I, we do it because God said to do it. We understand it's a, a command, but we do it out of obligation or out of the law and that, we don't, that our hearts are not connected. And my heart is this morning that we would fully connect with our hearts. Another danger is that if we don't know the importance of communion, if we don't understand what the elements mean or the significance behind it, then we can lack understanding. And we might say, well, why do we do this? And it must be just some tradition. And we can go through, we can even participate. You may have participated at one time or another and not understanding the full significance. And it, and it can lack some of the power, some of the punch it's kind of like this. Yeah, how many have heard the story of the, of the, uh, the newlywed wife that, that uh, goes out and wants to make a ham dinner for her husband? She gets a ham and she, she, uh, she gets it, you know, the big old ham, and, and she starts to cut away at the ham. She cuts off the big portion of the top of the ham, puts it in the, in the pan, puts it in the oven, and the husband says, Honey, why'd you cut off the top of the ham? She said, I don't know, but that's the way my mom always did it. <laughs> Right? You know this story? 
Yeah. So she said, well, well the, the husband was, you know, he's you know, an antagonist or whatever. You know, he says, well, what in the world? So well, my mom always did it. He asked the mom. He called her up, said, why in the world do you cut off the top of the ham? She said, I don't know. That's the way my mom always did it, right? And so he called grandma and said, grandma, my wife, my new, my bride, she's making me a ham and she cut off the top. I've never seen that before. What is it? What's the secret behind cutting off the top? She said, oh, honey, I always cut off the top because it wouldn't fit in the pan. <laughs> and what happens is that if we don't understand, sometimes we can move through things and, not, and we can miss the significance. And both of these dangers are realistic, all right? And none of us are exempt. There are silly things that we do, silly habits, things of, of tradition in our lives that once might have meant something, but now, <laughs> once were you know, efficient, but now they lack meaning or lack productivity. And I was thinking of some of the things that, that you know, through, the, through time, that, that, that happens to all of us. When the automobile hit the, the uh, market, there were people that resisted and said, nah, that's not going to catch on. <laughs> No, I'll never drive a car. I'm going to stick with my horse, or I'm going to keep on walking, right? Or I'll take the train, right? And then now, I mean, all of us came probably this morning. Did anybody walk to church this morning? I mean, we walked in, right? But, uh, but we drove our automobiles. The same thing is true when the when plane came on, on the scene. And people said, oh, that's too dangerous. You know, what in the world? And there are still people today that would choose to fly to, or to drive to Florida or to Alaska they would choose to spend those hours in the car when statistically it's safer to fly in an airplane. It's actually cheaper in most cases, but they say, ah, I'm not sure about that. And there's things that, that creep up like that in our lives. I personally kind of uh, resist technology. <laughs> I am not a technology guru, although my wife did get me an iPod Touch, and that's kind of cool, and it kind of like brought me up into, you know, somewhat of a cool status. I, you know, I was, I was thinking about it, and I, I still handwrite my messages, and I know that, you know, some people will be like, well, why, why do you do that? You know, the computer is so much easier, and honestly, I know that the computer, I know I could type it. I see people like John, you know, I don't know, you got your little computer here, you take notes, and uh, others of you, um, you know, I was afraid to say this, but, uh, you know, some of you know that we have wireless here, and you can, you know, get online, and Check out those scriptures. You can make sure what I'm saying is true, right? And some of you are more technologically advanced. And, uh, and you know, I'm not one to, you know, I, you know, I look at my wife's Facebook and, and things like that. But, you know, I thought, man, this week I'm going to do something to get me ahead. Now, I got my iPod Touch, but, but I, you know, so I went out and I created my own <laughs> iPad. And uh, I thought, if anything would make me look better, look cool, my little iPod, my own list, my, my list, my iPad, and it didn't cost $500, Greg, my iPad. That was for you, Greg. <laughs> but there's things that we resist. Now, how many of you have ever said this or heard this said, that's the way my dad did it, so that's the way I do it, right? Or that's the way I learned it. Whatever the case might be, and none of us are exempt, we all are in danger of letting traditions or letting things happen. Now, the church struggles in this uh, as well. There was a country church I read about this week. It was funny as I was kind of doing some research. 
in this country church down in the heart, the, the Bible Belt of, of America, they, at the one time uh, in their service, every, every time in the service, they'd all stand, they all knew when it was, and they would all turn towards the side wall and they would recite the doxology. Now, some of you are saying, what's the doxology? And, and, uh, and that's okay. But they would turn and recite this doxology, and there was just a blank wall there. So when a visitor said, you know, showed up and was like, man, that's weird. These people are strange. You know, they all got up. I didn't know what to do, so I just turned, and I knew a little bit of the doxology. And what happened is he did some research, is that years before, when the, first, when the church was first built, Someone had handwritten and then hand-painted the doxology on the wall. (laughs) And they would turn a a portion of the service. Now, since then, the church had been repainted and repainted, but the church still had this tradition. Now, we would laugh at that, right? We'd say, well, that's ridiculous. But what are the things in your church history, those things that, that you have done, that become familiar, become traditions. Now, how many grew up in the era where, and I'm looking around, no one wore a hat this morning, so I can just pick on this, right? That, that you were not allowed to wear hats in church, right? You remember that? You know, you show up to church and they're like, take that hat off, right? I mean, that's not what the Bible says. I mean, there's some tradition there. Some churches do coffee. Some churches don't do coffee. Some churches do coffee like a coffee bar, and, uh, and you know, what's right, what's wrong? The number of songs that are sang, the types of songs, whether we shut the doors, whether we open the doors, the lighting, you name it. There are things that it's like, where did these traditions start? And I was at a conference recently down in Holland, and the, the presenter was saying, you know, all of us struggle in this area. We, as churches, he was talking to a bunch of pastors, and he, and he challenged us as pastors. He says, go back to your church, and he says, figure out what you need to stop doing <laughs> because it's lost its significance, lost its meaning. Now, one of those things that we cannot afford to stop doing is to participate in the Lord's Supper. And, we, and it's an ordinance. It's, it's ordained by God, and we, we cannot afford to do that. There are some things we need to stop doing. There's other things we need to start doing. And again, the Lord's Supper, communion. We want to look at this morning, where does it come from? How often should we do it? Is there understanding? What is the practical significance? And where's the power for us this morning? And so I want you to, uh, to follow along with me. And we're going to kind of do a little study this morning. I'm not a theologian. I've never been accused of being a theologian. But I did do some study this, this week in, in concerns to, um, to this idea of communion, the Lord's Supper. Really, I want to go back to the Old Testament. There was a once a year after the children of Israel were released from Egypt when they were under slavery, once a year they were to celebrate something called the what? The Passover, right. And it was a week-long celebration, and part of that, there was a Seder meal, and that they would come together, they would sit down and participate in a meal, and there was lots of steps, lots of things, it was highly traditional, and they would do these things, and they would go along, and in uh, and, and part of that, they would take the cup, the third cup, actually, of suffering that represented the suffering that they had, and that they would, uh, they would, they would take that, and, uh, and then we fast forward, to Jesus' time, and they still participated in the Passover. They were remembering the suffering. They were remembering the deliverance, and there was high significance. But because they were human, 
We know that Isaiah, in Isaiah's time, it says the people came with their mouths and uh, they honored with their lips, but their hearts were far from it. And that was the danger. But in Jesus' time, they still participated. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus participating in the Passover. In fact, he sent his disciples ahead, said, hey, prepare a place, and uh, he's sitting down with them. He talks a little bit about, um, you know, uh, that one of the guys uh, among him, the 12, were going to uh, uh, deny him, or not deny him, but betray him. Uh, then Judas got up, he left. And then in verse 26, 26, 26 of Matthew, it says, while they're eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, he broke it, and gave it to the disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body. Ooh. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this was an interesting concept. This was not new to the disciples. The disciples at this point had an understanding of what Jesus was already saying. I don't think they understood completely. But if you turn with me to John chapter 6, we see that Jesus had talked this way before, that this is my body, this is my blood. And he had already brought his disciples on board. In John chapter 6, Jesus' ministry is well on its way. He fed the 5,000. Then he walked on water. And I'm telling you, uh, Jesus had a following. People were following after him and wanted to be with him because of the miracles and because of his teaching. And we get to John chapter 6, verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they traveled all the way around the lake. They said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he had walked on water. He met his disciples and, and went. And Jesus answered this. He says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, but not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves, the 5,000 that he had fed, and had your fill. But then it says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures eternal life, which the Son of Man will give. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, what he's talking about, he's saying, look, you have been fed. You were there when I fed the 5,000. You saw the miracle. You participated. You ate the bread. He says, but don't search out that bread, the bread that will spoil. He says, search for eternal food. He goes on and he says, then they asked him, well, what must we do to do, to work, to, uh, what must we do to do the works God requires? They're saying, well, just tell us what to do. We'll do it. Very works-oriented. And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, not to do works, but to believe in the one who has been sent. So they asked him, well, what miraculous signs then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers, there's that technology, piping in right now. Tell them it's a great service. Tell them to get, get here and not to miss the end says, what will you do? Answer the phone. No, our, our forefathers <laughs> ate the manna in the desert. Now listen, he takes them back to an Old Testament. See, the people there that, that participated in the feeding of the 5,000, they are remembering the story of old when the children of Israel in the desert, they were fed by this bread, the, by the manna. And he says here, he says, look, he says, look, I tell you the truth. 
It is not Moses who has given you this bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now someone in the crowd says, Sir, from now on, give us this bread. We had the bread yesterday. You're saying, if that's not what you want, give us the bread that will last forever, the one that will satisfy our soul. And then Jesus declares, now remember, he declares this way before the Passover. He says, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Skip down to verse 41. It says, and the Jews began to grumble. And they're saying, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus replied, he said, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught, they will be all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. And I tell you, he who believes has everlasting life. And then verse 48 he comes back to this idea that we see in the Passover in Matthew chapter 26. In, uh, 26. He says, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man on the desert. He's referring back to Moses' day. Yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. And then he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He says it again. If anyone eats of this bread... He will, for, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which, was, which uh, I will give for the life of the world. Now this is bizarre. This, to those hearers, confused them. There were questions. It says the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And I can imagine, if I was sitting there, Unless the Holy Spirit revealed, there would be this question like, what in the world? And then Jesus said to them, and this is where I want you to see. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me. You skip down. He, he says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> this is confusing. They did not understand completely what was happening. And then it says in verse 66, from this time, many of the disciples decided that it was too difficult to follow Jesus, and they left. They went away. It was too hard. But Jesus was talking about spiritual food. He referred to Moses with the manna and said, look, that was good, but they died. He said, even the food I fed you yesterday, breaking of the bread to feed 5,000, that will not sustain you. What we need is a piece of me. To sustain you spiritually obviously not a, a piece of his flesh and blood literally matthew 26 redefines the passover at that point if we go back to matthew 26 and by the way we see this in each of the gospels at the last supper jesus redefines he gives a new pattern he says here in matthew chapter 26 he says while they were eating they took bread gave thanks he says take eat. This is my body. And he took the cup, gave thanks, offered it. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which I poured out 
which is poured out for many, the forgiveness of sin. And then he said, this is the last time I'll do this until I return. And Jesus, of course, then was beaten and bruised and and, uh, wounded for our transgressions. He died on the cross. We know he went to the grave and and then he rose from the grave. He met his disciples and then he ascended into heaven. And you say, well, did they continue to do this pattern? Did they continue to honor the elements uh, uh, that we see? And uh, if you flip to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves. This is the early church after Jesus had gone into heaven. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, referring to communion and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their goods. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with gladness and sincere hearts. And then it says that the Lord added to their church daily those that were being saved. So we fast forward now. Now that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, the early church saw significance in remembering the Lord's Supper. Taking those elements, they would break bread and they would remember, the, the, remember what Christ said to do this in remembrance of him. They did it every day, it says. They would meet together they, of the breaking of the bread. But just like the church in the, in the Bible Belt that had the words of the doxology written on the wall, the early church, that pattern became a tradition. It lacked significance. And if you fast forward to Paul's writing, writing to the Corinthian church, at this point, in chapter 10, he's saying, look, don't forget how Israel struggled. Don't forget, in chapter 10, and we won't take the time to read it, but he refers to that verse back in Isaiah, chapter 29, that the, Lord, that the people came near with their mouth and with their lips, but their hearts were far from it. And at this point, early in the church, they were doing it every day, and it lost significance. And so he warned them of Israel's history. He talked a little bit about idol feasts and the Lord's Supper in chapter 10. And he says, look, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and cup of demons too. You cannot take part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. He's saying, look, you can't do it. He talks a little bit about the believer's freedom. He talks about, he he encourages them in their worship. But then in chapter 11, verse 17, he comes to this idea. He talks about communion, talks about the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, and he says this. He says, now, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than they do good. At one point, they were meeting daily, and it meant a lot. And they knew that God had called them to do it, but it had become mundane. They had lost the significance. Look, as we continue, it says, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. It says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes where you can eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? 
Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. They lost the significance of meeting together, the breaking of bread. And Paul saying to the Corinthian church, he's saying, wait a second. He's saying, stop what you're doing. He says, that's not right. It's not good. Tradition had lost meeting for the early church. And then we get to this part in chapter 11, verse 23, where he says, look, this is what I want you to remember. It says, for I received from the Lord that which also if I pass on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's two important pieces here that we cannot miss. Whether you've participated in the church and you've had communion a hundred times, a thousand times, or this might be your first time participating this morning, I don't know. There are two things that we just read that are highly significant. The first thing is that when we come to the Lord's table, we are remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. We understand that we remember what he did. So we're remembering the Lord's death. But we're also remembering that he's coming back. So it's not only is it a look back at the sacrifice that Christ made for us, the fact that he died for your sins, he died for my sins, he rose from the grave, he conquered death for us so we can live forever. But then also we remember that he is coming back. Church, we can remember. We need to remember. We need to live in anticipation that Christ is returning. He can return at any time. That's what the Word of God says. No one knows the day or the hour. And so we look back, but we also look forward to what God has for us. But then he doesn't, continue, he doesn't stop there. Paul says, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognition of the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. So not only are we looking back at what God did, we're looking forward to him coming back. There's a third look. We look inward. We say, God, examine my heart. Where am I today? And you know, Mike, um, when you mentioned that, boy, I, I miss that, I need that. I think that's the piece that we all need to remember. We need times in our lives to stop, to remember the sacrifice, to remember that Christ is coming, but to look on the inside and say, how am I doing? How am I doing? And this morning, we want to highlight that. We want to celebrate that. We know that communion is a command given by God. It's not a fad. It's not a suggestion. It's something that God ordained. And there's power that comes in it. The result of taking communion in a proper fashion is life change, transformation. 
as we look at the broken body, the bread of life, Jesus, our bread, our life. We look at the blood that was spilled for us. And we know that there's power in the memorial, in the, the symbolism that we partake in. Now, some traditions will say, they, they call it transubstantiation or consubstantiation, where they believe that the elements actually turn into the blood of Christ, or that the bread has actually become the, the true body of Christ. We don't believe that uh, here. We, we believe that you know, when Jesus said in Matthew 26, this is my body, it, we don't believe that the, you know, Jesus is right there. They didn't take a bite of Jesus. They took a bite of the bread. It was symbolic. And we, we see that as more symbolic or as a memorial. But there's power in it. Life change, transformation for each of us is potential. So our response as we come to the Lord's table is to examine. We do not do this out of tradition. I was asking some folks, you know, how often, you know, what's your pattern? What, what do you think? Some, some of the folks that we were asking say, oh, I remember, you know, taking communion once a month or once a quarter or once a year. Um, someone said, I think we should take it every week. And there are churches certainly that do that. Regardless, we need to make it a priority. But when we do it, we don't want it to be just tradition. We want there to be significance. Significance, understanding Jesus' sacrifice significance in the promise of his return. The significance of what the Lord spoke to us through, through, uh, through tongues and interpretation today, that God's kingdom can come onto earth and he can meet our every need. And that happens as we participate in the Lord's Supper. I believe there's significance in the idea that it grounds us as individuals. It kind of anchors us in our faith. It's a time as we go along in our lives and there's blips and there's, there's struggle and there may be some sin in our lives that we haven't dealt with and it's a time to stop and to say, okay, how am I doing? It encourages us to keep up the good fight. You may be struggling against something significant in your life and you're saying, man, what in the world, Lord? And we come to the Lord's table and we ask for his help. We ask for him to be with us. So this morning I asked, what are you in need of today? Are you in need of forgiveness? For God to cleanse you? And we're going to take some time to look within and say, God, you know, change our hearts. Are you in need of hope this morning? Because there's hope found at the table, on the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. Are you here this morning and you need to just be filled up? Maybe you feel a little dry. Saying, God, I, I want all of you, everything you have for me. This week, for those of us that have TV or internet, I don't know how you could escape this. I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but uh, this week we saw these miners in Chile that were raised up out of the ground, 700 meters below the surface, trapped. They needed a savior, didn't they? How many, 69 days? What's interesting is we've kind of watched that story, and I haven't watched it a ton, uh, but two to three days after they were trapped, there was a water trickle. From what I understand, it wasn't the most clear water, but it sustained them. 17 days after, they were able to drill a small five or six inch hole 
to be able to drop supplies and air, fresh air, oxygen. And because of the efforts of the people outside, these miners made it 69 days, and 33 of them came back to the surface. They were trapped. And the interesting thing is, uh, this is a, a little story that one of our missionaries, Kim Babcock, one of the missionaries um, that, that we support on a monthly basis, he wrote a little kind of review of that, and uh, he says, and he talked a little bit about some of the details, but then I love his thoughts. He says, and I'm not going to read this whole thing, but he says, he says, we live in a world where those that don't, do not know Christ are trapped in hopelessness and despair. They can't find a way out. <laughs> there are those that live above the surface, Christians. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Our perspective is distinct. God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear. We are called in this hour when times are hard, when the surface of mankind's heart is hard and seemingly impenetrable to drill, to pray, to believe that there is someone inside that must be reached, that must be rescued. And then he, say, he goes on to talk about that we don't do this alone. It's, we're part of a team. And then he says all of us, and this I, I think is, it applies to all of us, all of us may be in different stages of rescue. The neighbor next door may be drilling, praying, believing. And as we pray, a trickle begins to come in. But we cannot stop there. We must keep drilling. We must not stop until we are lifted out of the tomb we are trapped in. We must invest time, energy, finances, and dedication into these, into these rescue efforts. Some are drilling with little or no faith. Don't stop drilling, he says. Keep going. There is a chance of rescue for those trapped in the darkness. That was powerful. You know, each of us this morning are at a place. Some of you, your story is just mind-boggling the pressure, the struggle that you're in. And as we come to the Lord's table today, there is hope here. We can look back at what Christ did for us. We look forward to his return, the fact that our suffering is limited. It will not last forever. And then there's great hope that as we look inside, if we're trapped, if we're in the darkness, there are people praying, believing, drilling to get us out. And this morning, you can be lifted out of that darkness. And God wants to do that. He wants to rescue us. He wants to be our very help in a time of trouble. Mary, I'm going to ask that you come to give some support. Worship team, if you would come. This morning, we have the elements here. Sometimes we take little wafers. This morning, we're going to break this bread all from one loaf. And this morning, I want you to know two things. First is we have open communion. If you've given your heart to the Lord, you are eligible to receive the elements today. And so we want you to know that. The second thing is that there's a participation that we here at the Gateway Church, we, we participate together in communion. And what we'd like to do is, as we worship the Lord, I want us first of all to examine ourselves. And that may take a few minutes to say, okay, God, search my heart. And if there's anything in your heart that is not pleasing to the Lord, you need to get that right with the Lord before we...
we partake in communion. And just where you are, I don't need to help you. You just say, God, forgive me. Help me. Call on his name, and he'll save you. If you're not a believer this morning, before you partake in these elements, ask Jesus to come into your hearts. Let him change you. Let him help you. So there's that examination. So we want you to worship, and as we worship, to examine. And then also, as we worship, when you're comfortable, we want you to come. We want you to break a piece of the bread. Take the elements back to your, to your seat or find a place at the altar. Either way is fine. And then we're going to wait until everyone's served, everyone that wants to be served, to, to participate. And so we'll worship. We'll, we'll sing a little. And we're going to ask God just to meet us here in this moment. And then together we will partake in communion. Amen? Amen. Let's worship the Lord and let's seek the face of God this morning together. Amen.